Thank you for joining us for a message from the Christian Fellowship Church of Kandu, North Dakota. Please visit our website for more information about our church at kanducfc.com. So we are in a series about generosity right now. We've been going through seven motivations for living generously. And we're going to finish out this list of seven today with the last two motivations before we kind of shift gears in this series. We'll probably have two or three more weeks left, but we're going we're gonna to finish out this list of seven motivations for generous living today. So we have learned so far that we are motivated to live generously for Jesus when we experience God's love and generosity to us in our own lives, when we understand that we are a steward and not an owner of everything that God has given us. We, we learn to live generously for Jesus when we learn about the realities of death and judgment when we focus on heavenly rewards instead of earthly rewards, and when we understand the concept of we reap what we sow now in this life. Not we can't wait. It's got to be something that we take care of here and now. So this week, we're going we're gonna to cover two more. Let me, let me pray here, and then we'll, uh, we'll go for it. Jesus, I'm going to be honest. You know exactly how tough this message was for me this week. And we're not even started yet, and here I am already. Lord, I pray that you would just convict us with such mercy and gentleness and compassion that none of us would be able to leave here without a desire to live so generously that we're willing to change every aspect of our life. That's not too much to ask, Jesus. And I'm glad that you did ask us to live that way. Amen. Okay. So here we go. Uh, This is the sixth reason in our list of seven. Reason number six or motivation number six for why we should live generously is because we are surrounded by witnesses. In Hebrews 11... The writer, and not, no one knows exactly who the writer is. I kind of think it's Paul. It sounds like a Paul letter, but whatever. We're just going to say the writer of Hebrews leads us through the hall of faith, which includes faithful servants of God, such as Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Samuel, David, and on and on and on it goes. He lists all these people who have lived such faithful and godly lives. These are the great heroes of faith that we admire and whose faith we want to emulate. We want to copy them in the way that we live our lives today. However, the writer goes on to point out nameless heroes of faith as well. He goes on to talk about other people in 11 verse 35 to 37. But others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half and others were killed with a sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. Then the writer says this about all these people, these nameless heroes that he just described. 38 to 40 says, they were too good for this world. Wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground, all these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. 
For God had something better in mind for us so that they would not reach perfection without us. And then the writer connects these heroes of faith, both the ones that he gives names for and the people without names. He connects all of those people to us into this life that we're living right here, right now, when he says in Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. That is such a humbling passage. Such a humbling passage. Right there in this passage, we see that you and I were not only being watched by our Lord, we're being watched by countless people who ran the race of faith with excellence before we were even a twinkle in our mother's eye. Yes, both those who won great victories in the name of God and those who were trampled and yet remain true to God despite their suffering, they are watching you and me They are watching to see if we are going to follow in their footsteps. The heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, they have handed us the baton and they are watching to see if we are going to finish the race that they began. Maybe it was 10 years ago, a hundred years ago, or thousands of years ago. And they walked the same dusty roads as Jesus. From time to time, I wonder what it would be like. If I had been born in another country, somewhere other than here in Western culture, you know, we're not in a position of living out our faith in a country where it's illegal to be a Christian or where we would be denied basic human rights simply because of what we believed about Jesus Christ. But many, many of our Christian brothers and sisters are in that position and they are paying for it dearly. Here are a few statistics regarding the persecution of Christians all over the world taken from a ministry called Open Doors USA. Every year they come out with something called the World Watch List that talks about the 50 most dangerous countries to live in if you are a Christian. And they measure the danger of living there not only by political uh, oppression, but also through physical, mental, emotional uh, violence in, in a few different ways. So some of these statistics say this. Christians martyred worldwide last year. It was 345 per month. That's 4,136 per year. Now, if you don't know what the word martyred means, it means murdered. It means killed. Simply because they were a Christian who did not renounce their faith. Each month, on average, 219 people are imprisoned for their faith. That's 2,625 per year. Oh, sorry, I forgot. Yeah, so that was that one. But the one I I meant to say is church buildings, properties. The things that we as churches have, or we we feel that we have rights to, these things are attacked, demolished, vandalized, whatever. 105 per month, 1,266 per year. And then you can see the imprisonment statistics. And then each month on average, there are 772 acts of violence against Christians. That's 9,264 known acts of violence each year. This includes forced marriages, beatings, abductions, or rape. Voice of the Martyrs, another ministry that, that calculates the persecution of the church of God, uh, they say that 
in, in our world, there are every, for every 10 Christians, there is one Christian that is suffering extreme forms of persecution. Not just being made fun of or like having someone say, oh, you're a, you're a lame Bible thumper, but people who are fearing for their lives. One person suffering in severe persecution is a, is a young girl named Leah Sharibu. In February of 2018, news broke here in America about Boko Haram, the deadly Islamic terrorist group. They had kidnapped 110 female students from a high school in northeastern Nigeria uh, in a town called Dapshi. Roughly two months after the kidnapping, Boko Haram released 101 of those 110 girls. But Leah Sharibu was one of the nine girls who was not released by Boko Haram. The reason for them keeping Leah was because at 14 years old, she refused to renounce her faith in Jesus and convert to Islam. Fast forward for a moment here to September of 2018. Another news story broke about Boko Haram releasing a video of the execution of a Red Cross worker named Sarifura Korsa. She was a 25-year-old mother of two. She had also been kidnapped in a different abduction earlier in 2018. Also, there was a, another execution that was recorded and aired. It was a Red Cross aid worker. Um, oh, shoot. She, what was her name again? Oh, here it is. Alice Loksha. And she was actually a Muslim. This was the first time that the, that the Boko Haram terrorist group not only killed Christians, but they also killed Muslims. In a message to the Nigerian government, Boko Haram said that they had done these things because the Nigerian government had ignored their ransom demands and they would continue to kill if, they were, if their demands were not met. In its, first, or in its nine years, Boko Haram has killed roughly 20,000 people and displaced 2 million others, making them refugees, refugees simply because they're running in terror. Later in this same recording that first featured these executions, Boko Haram also said that they had three other hostages that they were preparing to kill if their demands were not met. One of these three hostages was, once again, young Leah Sharibu. So this is, this is all in the space of about eight or nine months. Let's go back. So in, in February of 2018, Leah Sharibu was abducted. We see later on that year that she is hanging in there apparently, but must be in absolutely dire circumstances. About a month or two after she was kidnapped, so this is back in March of 2018, Leah realized that she would not be freed with the other kidnapped girls. She quickly scribbled a note to her mother and she sent it with a classmate. Here's what that note said. My mother, you should not be disturbed. I know it is not easy missing me, but I want to assure you that I am fine where I am. I am confident that one day I shall see your face again. If not here, then there at the bosom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Leah's parents are Nathan and Rebecca Sharibu, also of Nigeria. 1 Peter 5 verse 9 says, Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Believers around the world are suffering more than we could ever imagine. We need to resist Satan and we need to stand firm in our faith. 
If people can do this in a situation where they've been kidnapped, tortured, likely have had unspeakable, unspeakable atrocities committed against them, yet they're not willing to renege on their faith, neither can we. Surely we can stand firm and even go beyond the place where we're standing already. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Leah Sharibu has denied herself, even in the face of death, even in the face of persecution that none of us will ever comprehend. Are we willing to take up a Western culture hardship so that we can stand for Jesus? Are we willing to face any and all costs that come our way to ensure that we can be legitimately called a genuine disciple of Jesus? Romans 12 verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. When I look at this verse, I see that my life is to be a living, key in on living sacrifice. I am meant to sacrifice what my flesh wants so that I can be someone who truly lives by the spirit of Jesus Christ. As I live for Jesus here and now, I am meant to sacrifice any desire that comes my way that does not multiply God's kingdom, that does not honor God, that does not make his name known. Any comfort, any possession, any luxury, any finance, any piece of time in my life does not belong to me. All of these things are for God, and I want to use them in a way that is holy and pleasing to him. This is my form of worship. This is our form of worship. Not just coming to church and singing songs. We, we keep hearing worship and we think about singing songs to Jesus. That is a part of worship. But worship is meant to be every moment of every day. If we think it's a big sacrifice to get up early on a Sunday morning so that we can be here for an hour and 15 minutes and endure a grueling message, we got another thing coming. Leah Sharibu would be glad to be here. I think we are glad to be here too. Let's keep growing in those desires. Believers around the world are facing this daily this kind of persecution daily. And I want my life not to be forced to honor God. I want to do it willingly and freely because God's called me to be a living sacrifice. I mean, it makes me want to just pray like Jesus as your church. What else could we possibly do with this life that you've given us? Thank you for calling us to live a sacrificial life. Thank you for not saying, yeah, whatever you want to do is fine with me. As long as you just believe that I exist. What a, what a cheap faith that would be. What a cheap experience that would be to live with Christ. Just saying, oh, I believe he exists. Surely that's good enough. We're called to something so much better than that. This life of a living sacrifice 
man, it's so worth it. Anything I've ever given up, and I'm sure that if you've had to give up something for the kingdom of God, you can relate. Anything that we've ever had to give up and we thought on the front end it felt like a sacrifice, like the moment that we gave it up, did it feel like it was an insurmountable sacrifice? No, did it feel like all of a sudden there was a joy that took over your heart because you gave willingly, not because God was twisting your arm? These are the moments, friends, that define our faith. If we can't look back in our life and say, I gave up something for the kingdom of God, I think we need to get started in that line of thinking. Without giving up something, I don't know if I can say in my own life, I'm not putting this on you, this is just the standard that I'm holding for myself. If I'm not giving up something for the kingdom of God, I don't know if I'm living for Jesus. I think at that point, I am living selfishly for my own interests. None of this is in my notes, so I'm going to have to recuperate here. But the motivation here in this is that someone has gone before us. They have given up so much so that we can have the baton now in our hand and we can walk forward in faith. Even if in in your family, you're the very first Christian, someone still told you about Christ. It may have been, may have been a preacher that you heard on the internet, that person Whoever it was, they gave up something in your life so that you could have relationship with Jesus right now. That is a great motivation to live all out sacrificially and generously for the kingdom of God. And our seventh and final motivation that we want to talk about is this. We want to finish strong for the generations that are coming after us. So motivation six is all about the generation before us. Motivation seven is all about the generation after us. Finishing strong for their sake. The example that I want to draw from is, an, is from my great-grandpa, Regeer. Bear with me, this is going to be tough. Okay, let's try. <laughs> In late November of 1919, my great-grandpa, Henry Regeer along with his family and many other Mennonites in the colonies of Ukraine, suffered unspeakable atrocities. Nestor McNow, an anarchist with a large mob of bandits, had a bone to pick with the Mennonites. He felt as though he had been done wrong, and now he was essentially trying to wipe them out. Nestor McNow and his group of bandits pillaged, raped, and murdered in the Mennonite villages of Ukraine. On the 29th of November, 1919, McNow's bandits entered Munsterberg, where 16-year-old Henry, my great-grandfather, lived with his family, and they owned and operated a wind-powered flour mill. The ruffians entered their home with swords in their dominant hand and revolvers in their non-dominant hand. They used swords primarily to commit their crimes so as not to alert the neighbors who they intended to make their next victims after they were done in this house. As they had all of Henry's family lined up to be executed, Henry tried to escape through a window. His first attempt to jump through the window was only partially broke the glass. 
causing one of McNow's men to shoot at him, but he missed because he was holding the gun in his left hand. Henry's second attempt to break through the window was successful, and he ran in his socks through the chilly November air to hide in a haystack. Henry's six-year-old niece, Mary, was the only other family member to survive the attack. She had been knocked unconscious when one of the bandits attempted to scalp her with his sword, but he had only gashed her severely in her head. She awoke just in time amidst the bodies of her murdered family members to flee the home moments before the bandits set it ablaze. At the end of that November day, 18 of Henry's family members were dead. In the years that followed, Henry was tempted with the idea of revenge. Although those feelings were strong, he ultimately chose to forgive, allowing the light of Jesus to illuminate his life through and through and setting himself and future generations in his family free from bitterness. Never once did he speak disparagingly of Nestor McNow his men, or any other Russians. In late 1926, Henry and his wife, my great-grandmother, Katharina, and their niece, Mary, who survived, they immigrated from Ukraine to Canada. They settled first in Steinbeck, Manitoba, but by the early 1930s, they had moved to a town called Foam Lake, Saskatchewan, where Henry pastored a church for 15 years. Then he moved back to Steinbeck and he pastored for another 12 years. My great-grandpa, he was a very soft-spoken man. I got to know him. He passed away when I was about 12 years old. He resisted talking about these horrors until quite late in his life. And then when he did speak about them, it was always in a way that muted the horrific details. Instead of dwelling on those things, he generously and completely chose to live his life for Jesus, even when it wasn't an easy choice. So what is the point of this story? All of us have a generation that will follow us. For some of us, that generation is biological. It's our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. For some of us, it might be the people that we have influence over in our life, our co-workers, maybe our neighbors. But all of us have someone who is following us. The Christians that came before us, they sacrificed something. They gave up what this world offered them in favor of what God promised them through faith. My great-grandparents, they left behind land, people, language, so that they could come to Canada in search of freedom. Three full generations have lived <clears throat> in complete freedom since they came to Canada. However, the fourth generation, our children, are facing a very different political climate today than I did growing up. Pressure from culture is steadily mounting against the church. Large portions of society have marginalized the church and Christian faith, saying it's unnecessary, it's just a nuisance. 
Christian morality and opinion has all been but removed from daily life. Many schools no longer welcome prayer, a practice that used to be commonplace. Liberal-minded people harass known Christian businesses with lawsuits. Politicians openly criticize people of faith and work against the church. Pastors are no longer respected members of society like they used to be. We're just some guy who people don't understand. The world we live in today, our government, our media, the education system, the justice system, and increasingly the banking and commerce systems are all being controlled or at least threatened by people who are aggressively standing against Christian faith. Now, you may say, well, you can say that, Jeff, but I don't see that. I get, I get where you're coming from. So here's a few examples of where these things are actually taking place in our modern world. In 2014, Anise Parker, Houston's first openly homosexual mayor, demanded that pastors from local churches surrender their sermons about homosexuality and gender identity to Houston City Hall for inspection. Failure to do so would cause these pastors to be held in contempt in a court of law. This demand was part of the city's new non-discrimination laws. Over 50,000 signatures made up a petition for a referendum on this law, more than twice the amount required by Houston City Hall, but the petition was thrown out over alleged irregularities. This is happening in our world today. This past October, New Hope Family Services, a Christian adoption agency that places children in the homes of people holding to a biblical view of marriage, one man married to one woman, were given an ultimatum by the state of New York. Place children in the homes of same-sex couples or close your agency forever. New Hope Family Services has served the state of New York by placing over a thousand children in loving families since 1965. Last year, Students for Life, a student-led pro-life group at California State University's San Marcos campus, was denied access to $500 of university-collected student fees to hold an event which educated fellow students about abortion and the sanctity of life. There are over 100 other student-led groups at San Marcos campus and they all have received funds from this same pot of money that has been collected by the university. The University of or Southern, or California State University has a policy at San Marcos campus. For every dollar that is given to a student-led group, $52 is given to an LGBTQ pride and equality group. It's, it's disproportionate off the scales. One last example. Today... Anyone planning to watch the Super Bowl? Anyone planning to watch the commercials for the Super Bowl? Sometimes that's more interesting. Pay attention to the Super Bowl ad that you do not see. Pro-life group Faces of Choice, along with My Faith Votes, have teamed up to try to get an ad featuring survivors of failed abortions to air during the Super Bowl. However, since July last year, Fox Sports has given faces of choice the runaround, giving them one reason and another for why they can't air their commercial. When faces of change makes the requested um, adjustments to their commercial that are necessary, Fox Sports then comes up with more excuses and tells them, well, those things are fine, but you didn't do this and this and this. 
Fox Sports is not budging on their stance that they do not want this commercial to air, even though they do not state any concrete reasons for their decision. And up until even Tuesday this past week, there were open spots for more commercials to be added to the list for the Super Bowl that plays this evening. This is the world that we live in. We can't have our heads buried in the sand. I, you know, I, I want to say that North America, Canada, the United States is a Christian nation. Canada is not in any way, shape, or form a Christian nation. It was founded like that, but it is not anymore. In my estimation, as someone who has now lived on both sides of the border, I'd say that America is a touch more of a Christian nation than Canada is, but clearly we can see by the examples that we heard today that we are trending in an unfortunate direction. Matthew 24, verse 10 says, At that time, when these kinds of things happen, many will turn away from the faith. Things are getting tough. We can see it. And they're likely going to get tougher. Life is going to become more difficult. I'm not trying to be pessimistic or negative or or be a doomsday prophet or anything like that. That's not the point. I'm trying to just be realistic. I'm trying to watch culture Read what the Bible says and understand what our position as children of God is meant to be. John 16, verse 33, Jesus says, In this world you will have trouble. Not you may have trouble, but you will have trouble. So here's the question then that we need to ask ourselves, because our children are watching us. Our adult children and our children children are watching us. Because of the way that this world is trending, because of the difficulties that we are facing right now, will we throw up our hands and say, all is lost? What's the point? There's no use in remaining faithful because it's just too hard. If my great-grandpa would have said those things, I doubt severely that I would be standing before you today. If he would have turned away from his faith just because it was difficult, he wouldn't be the only one to suffer. I would suffer and every generation that came after him. If we throw up our hands and we quit our faith or even just mail it in with a marginal effort, we may suffer just a little bit, but the generation that follows will suffer the most. When I think about what is surely coming For the generations after me, my kids and my future grandkids, hopefully, it truly motivates me right now, today, to not waste another second. I want to get up earlier and earlier in my day to press into Jesus more than ever before. I want to make the most of every day so that my faith will grow and my kids will see me as a living sacrifice. I want to affect as many people as I possibly can before God calls me home. I want to live generously because this life has nothing for me, but everything that I have is going to be with Jesus in heaven. To generously dedicate our lives daily to living for God is not an overreaction. It's not radical It's not even extreme. Giving every moment of every day to Jesus is exactly the correct and normal 
response for every Christian here on earth. This is the response that's needed from all of us. So friends, I just encourage you, live and give your life generously for God today, right now, so that your kids and future generations won't wonder, hmm, who is God when they're at our age? Let's pray. Jesus, I don't feel anywhere near adequate to preach this message. None of us have suffered in the way that people around the world have suffered. Thank you, Father, that we have been born in a country where we are free to follow you, to honor you, to love you. To give our lives as a living sacrifice for you. Thank you that in our culture, that's not a radical idea. But we can actually look at that and say, oh, that's the normal, average way that a Christian should live. Fully given over to Jesus. Lord, we need a lot of help with this. Because honestly, the society that we live in has totally watered down the Christian experience. I don't think that we can, we can step foot in many churches and truly see what it means to be a, a authentic disciple. But Lord, that's what we want to do. That's exactly what we need to do for ourselves and for the future generations, for the people who are looking at us. I want people in this community, Jesus, to look at the Christian Fellowship Church and say, whoa, that is a true follower of Jesus. They love Jesus. They give their lives every day for Jesus. Their time is not their own. We can see that they're living for a purpose that is far greater than themselves. Oh, Jesus, please. Please help us to live this way. And and God, it's amazing. You know, we're going into communion this Sunday. We talk about a living sacrifice. Man, in just 33 years on earth, Jesus... You showed us exactly what it means to be a living sacrifice. You did, not, you did not get caught up in the things of this world. You did not get bogged down with property or possessions or money or prestige or status or anything else that plagues us in our culture today. You lived the life that we want to live. So Jesus, we can, we're going to offer, we're going to, We're going to offer ourselves to you this week, but we want to offer ourselves to you right now in communion. Lord, when we take the bread and the cup, I pray that we would not do that casually or flippantly, but we would say, whoa, we are remembering the one whom our lives are meant to emulate. Thank you for teaching us to remember you in this way. Amen.